good reminder for us, right? In the midst of everything going on, God never changes. The goodness of God never changes, is always there. He's always pursuing us, coming for us. And it's just such a, a helpful reminder for us to think on the fact that, that God is good all the time, right? Well, uh, part of the reason why it's good for us to be reminded of the fact that God is good is because there are a lot of things going on in our world that make us think otherwise. Or, or not even think about God, but to, to look at our world and see all the hurt and the pain and the brokenness all around us. There's a lot of... Uh, a lot of a lot of people hurting in our world. A lot of families living below the poverty line. There's a lot of people who, who benefit from public assistance. And there are a lot of people drowning in student debt. There's, the, the, there's a question that I want us to ask ourselves this morning. In all of this, if God is good and there's all this pain and brokenness around us, what is the Christian response? Maybe more specifically, what, what's a biblical response? What does the Word of God invite us to do in, in partaking in the mission of God? A statement I hear from time to time, or maybe I should say I heard, uh, I used to hear a lot more, but God helps those who help themselves. This is not a biblical concept. It's not, it's not something we see in our Bibles. It's not a statement that's there. It's not a biblical principle. It's none of the above. Needless to say, when it comes to caring for those in need, I think there's some confusion out there as to what it means to, to, to respond to the pain and brokenness in, in this world as the church. I think there's, there's many organizations out there that attempt to do good. Many organizations that, that, that try to champion social justice. Organizations that, that focus on racial equality, gender equality, sexual equality. It appears that justice and equality are a common desire and a thread in our society. But somehow, somehow, there are some very different views as to what that looks like and what that is, what it should be. I think most human beings agree that we should be kind to one another. But what does that kindness entail? Is it just our sentiment towards one another, what we feel towards them? Is it important to have empathy for others? To, to feel or to have compassion toward others, to wish them well? Or, or is it more than that? Is there more to this in the biblical response? See, I think we live in a world that's increasingly divided in every which way, racially, financially, ethnically. We are a world divided, divided by sex and gender. But, but our world isn't just divided, it's fractured. I mean, you ever take a, a rock, not that you should go and do this, but if a rock has ever hits your windshield, what happens? It, it, it shatters, right? Or you hit one of those uh, um, emergency windows that, that aren't supposed to crack, but, but when, they, when they're broken, they shatter in every which way, and it's like a, a spider web of design on, on the, the windshield or the glass. This is how our world is, is, is broken. This is not just one side or another. There's many different fractures going on in our world. And the church can't remain silent. Church, I think it's important to understand as we look at this brokenness in, in our world, as we think of the fracturing going on in our society and the world surrounding us, 
Social justice is not the answer. Hear me out, please, and hear me out completely this morning. Social justice is not the answer. It's part of the answer, but social justice alone is not the answer. If we turn to human organizations or to human beings themselves to fix what's wrong in our world, what's wrong with us humans, it's a little like telling a person who's drowning in a well to climb out on their own, right? When we are the ones broken, we cannot fix the brokenness that surrounds us, that's in us, apart from outside help. So, no, social justice is not the answer to our world's problems, to the poverty and brokenness and and fracturing in our world. The local church, the body of Christ, the earthly body, that's the answer. Why? Because the local church is made up of broken people being fixed by and redeemed by Jesus. He is our outside help, reaching into our world, extending his hand of, of, of not just assistance, but of, of redemption, and changing the world in the process. The local church is that place that, 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 that meets the brokenness in our world, the poverty, the, the, the shattering of our world, and does something about it, Right? The answer to the brokenness and the poverty of this world is the local church that's been commissioned by Jesus himself to go out and make disciples of Jesus who share the life that they found in Jesus, right? Sharing in his likeness, in his, in his image, sharing his values, sharing his sacrificial love, sharing true hope for the lost, sharing his heart for the broken world. Right? We don't sit here and praise Jesus and thank him for his love and then ignore those who have been separated from his love and are standing in darkness, no clue how to change their circumstances or their world. The church, the local church, is, as Jesus tells us in Matthew, the light of the world, a city on a hill that can't be hidden. What that tells me, church, is that we need to be visible Our world needs to see the church, not just by how good we look when we gather together, but but by the ways that we reach outward from ourselves. The local church needs to be visible in the darkness, not adding to the darkness. We don't stand looking down into the well of the person who's drowning and say, hey, by the way, God helps those who help themselves. You know, we become the, 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 the hands and feet of Jesus here in this world, reaching out, God reaching out from eternity, loving the people that are lost, lowering a rope ladder down into the well so that, that, that this, these people can, can climb out of the darkness and into God's marvelous light. We're told in 1 Peter chapter 2, but you are a chosen race. This is about the church. This is the people of God. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You know, we, we toss this word evangelism around the church from time to time. And, and now I can't tell you who, whose definition this is. It's not mine. But, 
but I've heard it enough that it's really stuck, that, that evangelism, sharing the good news of Jesus, being a help, is just one beggar pointing another beggar where to find food, right? It's one hungry person pointing another hungry person where to find food. And that's not just spiritualizing our need for food as being our need for Jesus. That's a true physical need that's found and answered in Jesus Christ. Church, you and I are a part of a chosen race. We've been, we've been called out of darkness, right? When, when we sing of the goodness of God, we, can, we, can, we have reference to the goodness of God because we've also experienced the darkness of this world. And it makes us sing of the goodness of God even louder because we know where we've come from. But that's because you were called out of that darkness. You didn't climb out in your own strength. There are other people in this world that need to know that no effort they make to claw themselves out of a deep well will give them the, 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 the joy, the contentment, the relief, the, the security that they can only find in Jesus Christ. You and I have been called to this work. And this work that we've been called to looks very similar to what our world maybe calls social justice at times. At, at least at a cursory glance. But the outcome is very different. See, social justice from a, a non-religious point of view aims for each person's individual happiness, their, their comfort in their own skin, where, where the individual themselves, they define what it looks like to be happy or to be comfortable in their own skin, right? That, that's, that's how our world sees it. Everyone is allowed to live their own truth, whatever works best for them. And so fighting on behalf of our right to live our own truth is, is a very basic and general, but it's a definition of, of, of social justice in our world. Each person's comfort and happiness is paramount to everything else. Social justice apart from God is chasing after a goal that will not last because human beings we're constantly changing our wants, our desires, our, our idea as to what justice is or what equality is in certain places, in certain realms in our world. And by the way, I'm not talking about just racial justice or equality. I'm talking about this idea that we talk about gender equality and, and sexual equality. We're defining those things because of who we are, not because of who God is, right? And, and so what we what, what we're challenged with looking at this morning is that social justice, apart from God, is chasing after an ever-changing goalpost, goal line, right? Because our idea as to what we think justice is keeps changing over time, right? We're, we're, we're like these waves that are tossed to and fro, or we're, we're these people that are tossed to and fro in the waves, Social justice apart from God is chasing after a goal that changes like the seasons and the weather. We, we, it changes daily and we never know what to predict, what's going what's, what's to happen. But, but a biblical understanding of social justice is different. A, a biblical understanding of social justice is a justice that cares about justice on a horizontal plane, but only because it matters on a vertical plane. Biblical justice matters on our earthly plane because it's part of God's picture of justice in light of eternity. Maybe the best way for us to understand that what I'm talking about this morning 
is for us to turn in our Bibles to uh, Luke chapter 6, where when Jesus is talking to his disciples, he talks about the values of his kingdom. He talks about the values not just of living in his kingdom, but of his kingdom citizens, the people that live in the kingdom of God. Listen to what we can read here in Luke chapter 6, verses 20 to 26. This is Jesus, and he's lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you've received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, in this topic of wanting to understand your kingdom come here on this earth, the values of your heavenly kingdom covering the land of your earthly kingdom, of this earthly kingdom, Lord, I pray for wisdom for us. That, that this would be a, a place where you are shaping and molding our hearts as we go out into this world, not, not coming to this idea of, of justice and righteousness uh, with, with worldly eyes, but really seeking to know and understand what your, what your word says, Lord, what you have declared and what you have said is true. So, Lord, give us ears to hear, minds to comprehend, and courage in our hearts to believe and trust and follow you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for those of you who have maybe heard a passage similar to this, you're not wrong. This is, this is a passage that uh, in Luke is referred to as the Sermon on the, on the Plain, but in the Gospel of Matthew, it's the Sermon on the Mount. It, it's, a, it's a very uh, similar, slightly different wording uh, sermon that Jesus gives to his disciples. And, and specifically here, we're looking at what uh, what we've come to know as the Beatitudes. Now, they're called Beatitudes because they're spoken of in a very for- formulaic way. Jesus proclaims certain values in a formulaic way. Blessed are, and then he says, blessed are, and then he says, blessed are. And these are, are, are very important things for us to pay attention to. Some translations or some translators say that blessed is happy. Right? To be blessed is to be happy or happiness. And, and it's not wrong, but it's not necessarily right in the context of what we're looking at here. That it's, it's not uh, our, our happiness that is most important, but rather Jesus is, is trying to articulate that, that this is a status that he's, he's articulating. The, the citizens of the kingdom of, of heaven have a certain status. They're blessed as citizens of heaven. Right? Uh, one can be blessed but not be happy, right? You could be blessed because that's who God says you are. Your identity as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven is secure and is cemented, but you might be going through some things that, you know, you're just not happy about. And, and to pretend otherwise is, is to lie. 
I'm not happy about the circumstances I'm going through, but I'm blessed nonetheless. And it's similar with when we talked about joy and rejoicing last week, right? We can rejoice in our circumstances, not because they feel good or they're enjoyable, but because we know that God's purposes and plan are much larger, are more encompassing, are more whole in leading us to his kingdom and his outcomes. When Jesus proclaims, blessed are, he's telling us these are who the promises of God are intended for. And here's, maybe this is the best way for me to say this. Why I'm pointing us to this passage here in Luke chapter 6 is that I think when it comes to our world and thinking about how we invest our time and who we care about, we as a church, we care about who God cares about. And here in Luke chapter 6, we get a glimpse into the heart of God, who his heartbeat is for. It's for the poor, the hungry, the brokenhearted, those who are persecuted, right? We, we, it's easier to read this passage in Matthew, right, because, because, it's, because it's easy to look when, when Matthew, and we'll get to this in a little bit, when he says, uh, blessed are the poor, he doesn't say, blessed are you who, is, who are poor. He says, blessed who are the poor in spirit. That speaks more of like our soul, our, our, our pride or our humility. There's something more spiritual about it, right? Whereas Luke doesn't take that bend. Luke kind of takes a broader look at the values of the kingdom of God, not just the spiritual values, but the, the tangible, human, horizontal values of the kingdom of God that reveal the heart of God. First, consider God's heart for the poor. Uh, you know, as I mentioned, if you were to read this in Matthew, then, then you, you read it slightly differently and with more of a spiritual emphasis. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. But here in Luke, blessed are you who are poor, right? In the Bible, there are a few different ways for us to understand poor and poverty. It's not just, you know, this or that. It's a few different ways for us to understand this, right? In, in uh, one, one of the ways that our Bible reveals this idea of poverty are, are for those who, out of pure laziness and a poor work ethic, they've failed to live a morally responsible life in their community, contributing through work in other ways, and, and they choose rather to not work. And, and, and this becomes the, out, the poverty becomes the outcome of their life. God's response there is one of judgment. It is holding those who have chosen to live a life of poverty intentionally accountable, right? But here's the thing. Hear me when I say this. Not all those who are poor are lazy, right? I think sometimes when the church looks at those who are poor in our world, we may not say it, but in the back of our mind, we're thinking, well, they didn't. They, they, I don't know their circumstances, but they probably just didn't try hard enough, Right? There could be no other circumstances that are at work in their life that are keeping them poor. But that's not biblical. That's not the heart of God. Yeah, God holds those accountable who are not being uh, contributors to the community and contributors to society and, 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 and earning a living, those who are not being fruitful and multiplying with their lives and their talents and their abilities. But, but not all those who are poor are lazy. There are those who are 
poor who enter into poverty because of natural disasters or calamity. Think of the plagues in the Bible. There are farmers who worked to all ends to, 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 make, uh, to, to, to raise a harvest. But because of circumstances beyond their ability, they, when harvest season comes, they've got very little to show for it. Now, is that their fault? Were they being lazy? No. There are circumstances beyond their ability, and God's response toward them is one of mercy and support and compassion. There are those who, who are poor for, for righteousness' sake. These are individuals who have chosen to pursue a calling that does not provide earthly treasures, but because God has called them to follow him in, in faithfulness, they pursue a path of, of, of building up the kingdom of God and spreading God's righteousness here on earth, and, and, and they've forgone a, a pursuing a career that would provide you know, higher, a higher salary. When Tar and I worked in, in, uh, Boston, in the Boston area and Tar's work with the Salvation Army, we had a chance to go on a tour of the neighborhood that we were looking to work in. And I met these two individuals, they were, they were monks. I don't know of what order or not, but they had chosen a life of poverty. They, they, I think they even wore like, I don't know if you remember, like wool um, cloaks. <laughs> the, the word has escaped me because it's so rare to see someone wearing wool in the middle of summer. But uh, anyway, they could have, like we were, we were living outside of this neighborhood. We were living up on the North Shore of Boston at the time. They could have chosen... To, to, to work a job that paid more and then just come in and help every so often. They chose to live in the neighborhood they served. They chose not to commute in and out of this neighborhood that, that was a poor neighborhood, but to live among the people and serve them and care for them and, and, and to not live in this uh, supple life of, of, of riches. Now, there are those people who are poor by choice, right? One last way that the there are poor uh, spoken of in, in our Bibles. And those who are victims of abuse. Those who are victims of, of a ruthless oppression at the hands of the powerful people that, that rule the land, right? Or the powerful tyrants. There are those who are buried under systems that no matter how hard someone works, they'll never get out from underneath the oppression of another without some sort of supernatural help. Some sort of help from beyond their circumstances and their situation. Here, God's response is to rescue and to redeem. Look at, look at uh, Exodus chapter 6 with me. I want us to see how God's heart beats for those who are victimized by unjust oppressors. Moses writes this. He says, moreover, he's writing down the Lord's speaking. I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from, slave, from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Now you might say, well, this is because God had a covenant with Israel. He even references that here. But I, I think that misses the point. Israel was nothing special when God chose Israel, right? Israel was, was not even Israel. Israel was a, a man who God made a promise to and built a family, and that family grew. And, and, and yet God, his character, his nature, 
is one where he hears the groaning of those who are living under slavery, under oppression, and he goes to them and rescues them and redeems them. I think it's important for us to understand the heartbeat of God for those who are living under unjust circumstances. Verse 21, Jesus says, those who, blessed are those who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. You will be satisfied. He said, it's the same thing with thirst. Those, blessed are those who are thirsty now, for you shall, your thirst shall be quenched. The, the, the difference here is a now and later, right? The emphasis is on now. Blessed are you who are hungry now. See, the people that Jesus is pointing to are those whose souls are not filled and satisfied with the earthly riches and the earthly powers of this world, but instead look to God's kingdom for their sustenance, for their security, for their provision, for their care. See, I think here what Luke is talking about is a contrast in choosing dependence on, on earthly treasures, uh, sorry, and choosing to not be dependent on earthly treasures, but instead to choose provisions uh, in eternity with Jesus. Treasures that Jesus says will not rust, will not rot, will not be stolen, but will be kept for us for all eternity in heaven. And so when Jesus declares that the blessed people are those who weep now, for they will have laughter later, he's talking about those whose joy is not found in something in this world, but those who persevere the tribulations of this world with their hope on eternity with Jesus. Similarly, God's heart is for those who are persecuted because of the choices they've made surrounding following Jesus and living like him. The remaining verses of our passage focus on the, the woes, the warnings, the troubles of those who are rich, those who are, who, who are full, those who are satisfied and seek approval in the eyes of man. Notice that Jesus doesn't say, blessed are those who are rich and satisfied, but says, woe to you who are rich. Now, this isn't because Jesus was saying that it has something against those with money, right? Because if we understand in the fullness of Scripture, being rich in this world doesn't necessarily mean you're not a child of God. Remember, our Bibles don't say that, that, that money is the root of all evil, but the love of money is the root of all evil, in other words, these promises of woe, and even these blessings that, that Jesus has proclaimed, are focused on people who've chosen to love him versus this world, or to love this world versus then, in, in contrast to, to loving God. Here with the woes, these, these promises of woe are upon people who've chosen to love this world and its treasures, which are fading, rather than God's eternal kingdom and his, his love. I think these, these people who are the recipients of the woe in our passage are those individuals who don't have a future promise to look forward to. Their treasure is right there in front of them, and, and they've got to do everything they can to hold on to that treasure. They can't, they, they can't let it uh, fall between the grasps of their fingers. See, the work of God in this world is not to satisfy those who are already full. It's not to give more riches to those who already believe themselves to be rich. It's not to give more laughter to those who are seeking their happiness in the world. The work of God is to minister to those who are poor and hungry, thirsty, and persecuted toward this world. And here's the thing. All these 
blessings and woes reveal the heart of God and who God's heart is for. It's for those whose heart is not set on this world, but set on eternity, set on a, a life forever with him. So the question I, I hope we're going to ask, or we can ask together, is what does this mean for us in the church? What does it mean for us to know and understand the heart of God? If God is truly for those who are poor and hungry, thirsty and persecuted, those who are oppressed, if that's true, what should the church's response be? Well, to answer this, I want to give you some insight into a conversation a group of men had this past Thursday at Square One Men's Bible Study. We were, uh, by the way, this is, that's me crediting Square One Men's Bible Study, so if I say anything that's off from here on forward, we can blame it on them. Um, this past week, we were being led by one of our elders, Tom Lacey, through the study of Psalm 146. And, and, and in the midst of our discussion, we had this very same talk. We had this very same conversation, right? I want to share with you three conclusions we came to as a result of our study. First of all, achieving social justice, and, and granted on Thursday, I'm not sure if we actually put things in the context of this is social justice or this isn't, but a, a, achieving justice on an earthly plane, purely, you know, horizontally, is impossible. Achieving social justice, achieving justice apart from God, is impossible. Listen to Psalm 146, verses 3 through 7. Put not your trust in princes, in a, in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. Justice can only be achieved when it first pursues justice vertically and then horizontally. In a world that is not altogether around following and pursuing Jesus, there are going to be some that have this longing for justice, a longing for equality, a longing for peace. But you know, we know from from the Bible, that justice apart from God is not possible. It's the Lord who sets the prisoners free. Don't trust in, what is he, sorry, let me go back to, Do not put your trust in princes, in a son of man. Why? Well, point blank, there's no salvation in him. Why? Because when his breath departs, when he dies, when he returns to the earth, on that very day, his plans perish. Right? Your legacy, as much as you think of it as a legacy, is nothing apart from God. Right? People will forget the things I say and do. They, 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 as much as I don't want to say this, they're going to forget me. Someday you're going to forget me. And that's, that's natural because when I perish, my plans perish with me. God's plans do not. Right? Justice can only be achieved when it first pursues justice vertically. When we align ourselves with God's view of justice, with his view of peace and righteousness in the land. So what we discern together is that Our mission isn't just about doing nice things for our neighbors. 
Our mission is to make disciples of, uh, of Jesus of all the nations. In other words, what justice we seek for others in this world is only part of the picture because there's no justice in this world unless we're first seeking justice for eternity. The second conclusion we came to was justice is God's to accomplish. And he sent his son Jesus as his ambassador for this very purpose. If justice is God's purpose to accomplish, then he sent an ambassador, and his name is Jesus. See, Jesus' mission was to provide justice and righteousness for eternity and to bring his kingdom values here on this earth. Jesus said, I was sent to seek and to save those who are lost. Jesus doesn't want to find those who are lost in this world and then kind of turn them and set them on their way and then take off again. He's concerned for their salvation both now and for all eternity. Psalm 146 teaches us that the Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous, those whom he has justified. The Lord watches over the sojourners in foreign lands. And the Lord upholds the widow and the fatherless. See, it's this very mission that Jesus points to when he reads from the scroll of Isaiah in Luke chapter 4. Shortly after, he spends 40 days in the wilderness fasting and, and being tempted by the devil. He returns from the wilderness, and, and we're told that he goes to the temple. And when he's there in the temple, he stands up and he reads from the scroll of Isaiah, and he reads these words in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The poor and the needy, the widow and the sojourner, the fatherless, those who are persecuted, they're not just periphery concerns for God. They're not just things we do to make it look like we're a Christian. They're God's mission in this world to seek and to save that which is lost. They matter to God. And they matter to Jesus, which leads us to our third concern. Since they're central to God's mission and central to Jesus' mission, they're central to the church's mission. The church is not a safe place to kind of cordon ourselves off from the, the world where we can just surround ourselves with people of like-mindedness. That's not what we're meant to be, what we should be. The church is not a place where we can rally together with others who share our views on what's going on in this world and feel safe because we've got other people that share our views. The church is the body of Christ on the move in this world, established on this earth to do the work of Jesus. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, I'm going to credit Ed Soderberg with this one. He pointed us to this verse. Paul writes these words, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Church, let me tell you something. This is how it works. If there is someone drowning in a well, then it doesn't work to say, Hey, have you prayed and asked God for forgiveness? It requires that we send a rope down into the well to say, hey, 
Your heavenly Father sent me. He heard your cries of distress. Come up out of there. Let me tell you more about his love for you and the life he has for you. We're, we are ambassadors for God. But not just like, hey, we've been given a message to repeat from the Bible. God is spiritually making his appeal through us. That's what Paul tells us in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. We're ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal, his appeal through us. You and I are ambassadors for Christ, just as Jesus Christ was an ambassador for God the Father. God is making his appeal through you and I to reconcile the world to him. We're not just shouting God's message at them. We're an ambassador. We go to where the, the poor and, and, and downtrodden are. We, we come alongside the, the widows and the fatherless. We, we come alongside those who are persecuted. And we don't tell them, hey, you know, you're persecuted because you're being too lazy or whatever. We say, hey, why are you persecuted? How can we help? Let me show you, let me teach you about a justice and a righteousness that is unlike anything this world has to offer. Justice is possible in this world. But not a social justice that ignores God or his promises and his plans. See, justice that's possible in this world is achieved through the church as we carry on the mission of Jesus to the lost and broken in this world. When we adopt a heart for those that God's heart beats for. So the questions of racial equality matters to us because it matters first to Jesus. The question of poverty matters to us because it matters to Jesus. The question of justice and righteousness matters because it matters first to Jesus. The church is absolutely about social justice and it's always been about social justice. That's that's the, the kind of catchphrase of today of, of social justice. But before there was social justice, there was a bigger picture of justice in general, right? Whatever kind of justice it is in this world, God, it matters to God. Because God doesn't want us to understand justice in light of how this world sees it. He desires us to understand justice in light of who he is, who he's always been, and who he has desired his church to be. The church absolutely has a seat at the table wherever justice is being discussed. Why? Because Jesus was about justice. Maybe it's not the justice you see discussed uh, you know, on the news or in social media or, or in some of the social circles in our community, but it's a biblical justice that looks to lift up the brokenhearted and call the downtrodden out of darkness and into God's marvelous light. A light where we ourselves have first experience, right? God says that we can love because he first loved us. We can share the light of the world because he's first shared his light with us. Church, there's no real justice in this world apart from the Lord accomplishing it. And this justice was the very mission for which Jesus was sent. And this is the mission that the church has been given to, uh, to be ambassadors for. So does the church have input and an answer for the world's brokenness? Yes. 
Should the church be concerned about social justice? Yes. Why? Because Jesus was concerned about it. Church, it is our desire to see the love of Jesus overwhelm and transform the families of our community. But that's only going to happen when we realize that the church is not meant to be a place to just come and be encouraged once a week or twice a week, but a place of our equipping where we, send, we are sent out to then bring the justice of God into this world. Not the judgment of God, the justice of God as his servants. So let's be that kind of church. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I know that there are more scriptures than even Luke chapter 6 where we can see the heart of God for this world. And not just to, to, to see how you care about those who are poor or widows or fatherless, but really, Lord, to care for all those who are lost and broken in this world. Lord, uh, I know that this feels like a very complicated and confusing topic to discuss, but I pray that you would empower us to boldly go forth out of a knowledge of your heart and your love for this world, that we would be that city on a hill that can't be hidden as we shine forth the light of Christ into our community. That, that, that five years from now, two years from now, we would be able to say that we're seeing more and more families who are being overwhelmed by and transformed by the love of Jesus. Because we as your church are sharing in the mission that you've sent Jesus for. Make us your ambassadors. That you might make your appeal through us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.